0: the hell is going on what's really going on we said what the hell happened you don't have to know what the hell is on it they, they see what's going on at i don't the... know what's going on what is going on we must find out what is going on
1: hi i'm danielle petka i'm mark Thiessen. welcome to our podcast What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell? We
2: got a a great interview today with Senator Cory Gardner. He's been a leader in Congress on Asia policy, which is something that used to be sort of esoteric and no one really thought about except for us people at think tanks. But suddenly everybody's affected by Asia policy because we got a virus that originated in Wuhan and has spread across this country and caused massive problems for our country and for our economy and for American workers, 40 million of whom have lost their jobs. So Asia policy is really, really big deal for a lot of people these days.
1: What I like about what Gardner's been doing, and I, you know, this is going to sound trite, but what I like about what gardner has been doing is that he's been doing it with Democrats. Yes. That, in fact, he has, you know, for folks who don't understand, you know, introducing a bill on Capitol Hill is nothing. You know, you've got staff, you've got a legislative council, you write it out, you throw it on the floor, and then you, you send out a press release and, and voila. You know, and for a really big number of members, that's it. It's never going to go anywhere. They don't actually know what the bill does, and they don't really care. You know they've got their prop- messaging right. Messaging, they've got they've right? got their propaganda moment when they go for their real like commercial. I introduced blah 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 bill, but Gardner didn't. Corey Gardner is the chairman of the subcommittee on Asia at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Ed Markey, who is. No conservative Democrat, senator from Massachusetts, was the co-sponsor of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act in 2018, and it passed. And it's the law of the land. It is being implemented by the Trump administration. And it focuses a lot on two things that I think are really important that we haven't talked as much about even as we have talked almost incessantly about China. And that is about how to support our allies in Asia and about the Chinese military threat.
2: So one of the things that we've talked a lot about, Danny, is our concern about how China is being politicized. This is an opportunity for us to do something in a bipartisan fashion because Republicans and Democrats in Washington and in the heartland all agree that China's to blame for what we're going through right now, and that oh, we need to be more aggressive when it comes to China. So there's there's rarely a moment in history where things align in such a way where you really have intense public interest in China and holding China accountable for its misdeeds, intense agreement across party lines, and then people on both sides on Capitol Hill willing to do it and a president willing to sign it. That is a huge opportunity for this country to really pivot and do something important about reassessing our relationship with China. And Cory Gardner has been leading that effort up on Capitol Hill.
1: So for folks who don't know him, he's the senator from Colorado. He's uh, up for reelect this year in a state that is... Let's just say not as solidly in the Republican campus as he and many others might hope. As I said, he's the chairman of the Senate Subcommittee on Asia at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's a lawyer. He's a good friend to many of our friends at AEI. And that alone is fine qualification to be on a podcast with Mark and Danny, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, Senator Gardner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. So let's start with the, uh, with the big awful that everyone's seeing uh, going on all around us. Uh, there are protests all over the country and there are riots all over the country, people burning down uh, businesses, attacking police. In Denver, 284 people have been arrested by last count for uh, assaulting police officers, burglary, arson. It seems like we're in the middle of chaos. What, what is going on?
0: Well, look, I think that the murder of George Floyd clearly, you know, it it scorched our souls and uh, made everybody realize that there are things in this country that we've talked about or whispered about, uh, thought we addressed, but clearly uh, more needs to be done. Uh, And uh, the cries that have been rightfully heard uh, as a result of George Floyd need to be met with real resolve for answers on justice, equality. Uh, to make sure that we are rooting out racism. The protesters, the peaceful protest, which is the definition of a protester, right? Violence, I don't think uh, defines a protester. Violence uh, turns into somebody who is not a protester. They've turned a different page. So keep the protesters voice being heard and answered and the responses uh, that need to stem from that. But the violence has to stop. Uh, And uh, mayors, governors, the president need to work together to do that
1: you know it's interesting senator you focus a lot in your work on the hill on u.s foreign policy and and on asia and one of the things that we've seen is our adversaries in Beijing exploiting the dissension, exploiting the national tragedy, you know, that we are in the midst of to exacerbate tensions. We see troll farms on Twitter. We see social media being manipulated by anonymous accounts that are trying to deepen the wedges between Americans and stop us from coming together as a country how do we begin to protect ourselves against this sort of manipulation by outside enemies
0: if you go back and you think about the you know, the long memo by Keenan and you think about the, what he said and he talked about how you know Russia was trying to the Soviet Union trying to sort of feed on diseased tissue and if you look at what China and Russia have tried to do over the past many years in this country, including the 2016 election. They would try to approach the divisions in this country to amplify them, to create division, to pit American against American, to create a lessening of trust in our institutions. That's all they were trying to do before this year of COVID-19 response and riot response and social unrest as a result of the murder of George Floyd. I mean, and they continue to do that. And, and the experts that I've talked to from, you know, our leading military experts, our leading military commanders uh, have all said that they're seeing China do things now that they thought they wouldn't see or that maybe they thought would come 10 years or 15 years down the road. I think there is a belief by China that they see America down on its knee. That is wrong, but we have to prove it's wrong. And what we have to do is make sure that we are strong in our response to global pandemics, that we are strong in our response to the cause of George Floyd's murder and how we are going to assure the American people that we won't let that happen without answers and responses. And so I think they are looking at the United States and, you know, writing cartoons about a fracturing Statue of Liberty. Uh, they're wagging their fingers back at us on what they perceived as moral lectures from the United States and saying, ah, see?
2: So Senator, you bring up the uh, Mr. X article and the George Kennan and the Soviet, the Soviet example. In the 80s, the Soviets were actively spreading propaganda about how the United States was an irredeemably racist country, homeless people all over the streets, you know, trying to distract from the flaws of their system. China's doing it today, but they're doing it in a completely different environment where they have so many social media tools and other technologies that allow them to infiltrate our society with these
0: messages and also with their own society. How do we combat that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, we had early on met with uh, the White House and talked about creating a, early on in this uh, COVID-19 epidemic, uh, talked about how we can create a national security advisory uh, NSA team at the White House that is going to be uh, dealing with, NSC team, uh, dealing with the, the misinformation coming from China. And they did that to, Matt Pottinger stood up a group at the White House to counter uh, the misinformation coming from China on COVID-19 and beyond. You know, when we passed the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, we were very conscientious about making sure that we were working on ways to help the economy, ways to bolster our national security, but also how do we put uh, funding and efforts together on Rule of law, democracy, countering China's misinformation, making sure that we had a way to talk about our system. You know, one of the things the United States doesn't do enough of, and that is talking about the importance of our system and being proud of our system and how uh, we can push back against China's system of governance against the Chinese Communist Party and what they are doing and use that and show that to other nations who are being influenced by China or who may fear the influence of China to underscore the reasons why they shouldn't uh, go hook, line and sinker with China. So, uh, you know, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, the Taipei Act, uh, we've now funded, I think, two and a half billion dollars worth of uh, ARIA and ARIA related programs. Uh, to push back uh, from a security standpoint, security cooperation, build security cooperation, bolster our allies in Asia and beyond. And so it's the White House to push back on misinformation. Uh, It's our efforts at the State Department to track uh, China's economic bullying and diplomatic bullying. Uh, It's our efforts to make sure that we provide uh, a rapid response on social media, and it's about building allies.
1: So, Senator, you're talking about the Asia Reassurance Act, uh, ARIA, one of the more attractively named pieces of legislation. (laughs) Uh, And I got to say, you know, one of the things that's worried me in this post-COVID moment on Capitol Hill is that there's so much legislation on Asia, on COVID, on what to do about the Chinese threat, on what to do about trade, on what to do about, you know, everything, that the list of legislation that's been introduced since COVID broke out is overwhelming. Not all of that is going to happen. Capitol Hill should have a coherent strategy. So what is going to be the most important added value to the ARIA uh, legislation coming out of Capitol Hill this year?
0: Man, that is a, it's a really good question because we kind of live in a world today where Page views and clickbait trump everything else. And so, if you can put a headline that gets the most clicks or uh, gets the most page views, you become this influencer, or you get paid on ad revenue, or uh, you can get more people on your mailing list. And, you know, we can't approach policy from that same point of view. But we have to have a methodical approach that builds allies, alliances, and cooperation long term. And that's not jumping from issue to issue, from bill to bill, it is seeking and grounding that strategy. And that's what the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act does. When I first got elected to the Senate, became chairman of the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Asia, uh, you know, I met with this, this, this uh, whippersnapper at the White House who was just doing Asia policy named Matt Potten, uh, who has uh, elevated very quickly uh, into uh, the key positions and influence on Asia. We talked about what we needed to, to deal with when it came to a U.S. policy toward Asia. I traveled extensively through the region, meeting with leaders and prime ministers and presidents of countries to talk about their view of the United States. And there's a, a conversation that really stuck out in my mind. And it was a conversation I had with the foreign minister in Southeast Asia who said, where are the Danny Inouye's and the Bob Dole's? We don't know the United States anymore. And it was about relationships. And it was realizing at that moment that we have spent so much time, and and rightfully so, focusing on the Middle East, but it's come at the expense of an area of the world that represents 50% of global population, 50% of global GDP, the largest standing armies in the world, a huge portion of our mutual defense agreements and treaties and alliances in Asia. And so the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act was about creating that large strategic framework based on economic security, based on national security with 1.5 billion dollars in security cooperation based on rule of law democracy and human rights those three things then we could use as a focus of congress to fill out how we get back into a permanent presence permanent engagement long-term allied cooperation uh building in asia
2: you mentioned senator danny in a way who was a democrat and bob dole who was a republican and worked in a bipartisan way uh, to promote US interest in Asia. One of the big concerns that we've had on this podcast in discussing China since the COVID outbreak is that there's both a advantage and a danger. The advantage is I think that the COVID crisis has brought Chinese malevolence to the forefront of American people's attention in a way that it hadn't and in the threat China poses. And there's really, if you look at the polls, bipartisan support for confronting China and being more aggressive in dealing with China's malfeasance in the world. But partisan politics seems to be getting in the way of that. You've managed to pass a bill that was bipartisan. Your partner was Ed Markey in the Senate. How can we seize this moment, avoid it getting dragged into politics and seize this moment to have a truly bipartisan policy towards China?
0: Well, look, I I think every single person on the Hill, Republican or Democrat, has a deep and keen interest in containing and deterring the malign influence of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, early on, I recognized in the Senate that you don't get things out of the Senate that make a difference unless you have strong support from Republicans and Democrats. And so at the very early stages, we began working with Ed Markey, my ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee. To lay out this plan, the three pillars: national security, you know, economic security, rule of law, democracy, human rights, and uh, what we could be doing to get a major strategy piece passed. And so we engaged uh, with think tanks around Washington, around the country, quite frankly, with military leaders, with uh, you know, trade leaders, with my Democratic colleagues, Chris Coons, Ed Markey, Tim Kaine, really with this vision about what ARIA was and could be. Uh, and then, of course, the White House. Uh, and uh, talking about the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy that we can flesh out and have in uh, in in Congress, uh, in in law, in statute. And that's exactly what uh, what we did. So uh, you know, it came out of committee unanimously. We took a lot of uh, advice, feedback, and input from other members to make this something that everybody could agree on. And then let this be that thing that 40 years from now, Congress says. Under the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, we were able to proceed with a a free trade agreement with ASEAN countries. Under the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, we fleshed out the Pacific Defense Initiative uh, that really builds on our our presence uh, in countering China and what we did. It's critically important that we do this. We've learned from the European Defense Initiative. We know we need presence in Asia. This is the tool, the key objective to make it happen.
1: So all of that is music to our ears. You know, both Mark and I spent a long time at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and and agreed that a lot, you know, when you really want to, to win, it needs to be bipartisan. And there shouldn't be anything partisan on the question of how we deal, both with our friends in Asia, but also with our enemies. One of the things that's made me really nervous is watching our relationship with South Korea, A lot of that has to do with the nature of the government in Seoul right now. There's a a very left-wing government that is focused on warming up more with Kim Jong-un than warming up with Donald Trump. We have uh, been in in a standoff with our South Korean allies about who's going to pay for U.S. Forces Korea for more than a year. We just cut a deal in the last uh, 24 hours to start paying our Korean employees. They haven't been paid since January. That's obviously a big uh, intelligence opportunity for the North Koreans. When people need money, they need money. Are you nervous about the future of that relationship? What do you feel about Donald Trump's demand for $5 billion in order for our troops to stay in South Korea?
0: I think the U.S. people-to-people relationship is stronger than ever. Between South Korea and the people of this country, that relationship forged in blood is stronger than ever. And so we need to build on that. Uh, we passed, uh, of course, the updates to the Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. In my home state of Colorado, that's created thousands and thousands of jobs, and it will continue to, uh, much of it based on agriculture. So there's opportunities that we have uh, that I think are unparalleled uh, from a trade standpoint, and particularly from a security standpoint. Uh, South Korea is so incredibly important to Asia, to the United States. And it's a shining example of what a country can be. I mean, it wasn't you know, just decades ago that South Korea perhaps it was even behind North Korea development-wise, and look at it today. So it is what can become of a country when they make the right steps toward openness, democracy, toward freedoms, and, and, and the right to economic market base. What the United States cannot do, and this is where I worry that is happening, we saw what China is willing to do to impact dramatically by the turn of 11, 12, or more billion dollars South Korea's economy when South Korea doesn't do what China wants it to do. I'm talking about that and the deployment of the THAAD, the defense system in South Korea. China put about a $12 billion plus economic hit uh, on uh, South Korea's economy, so they're willing to squeeze them. They know the United States uh, is that bulwark uh, against uh, China doing that and our ability to push back on China and help South Korea. But what we can't do, this is what I worry about the current negotiations uh, on our forces in South Korea, uh, is we can't push South Korea toward Beijing. Yes, I'm, I'm concerned about some of the decisions that the, the government has made in South Korea. And I'm certainly concerned about, you know, an overwarming of relationship with North Korea that could hurt our ability to denuclearize North Korea. But we cannot also push them into a relationship closer and closer with Beijing where they already have to be because they're neighbors. So that's why our SMA uh, needs to be uh, worked out, why we need to make sure that we are coming to an agreement sooner rather than later, why we need to treat this uh, uh, as one of our most important foreign policy objectives, to get an agreement, not embarrass South Korea, work with Seoul to make it happen, and re-engage with this government in a way that helps uh, achieve the mutual benefit of of economic uh, partnerships and security partnerships.
2: One of the things that we've all been concerned about is watching how China is using COVID as a pretext or cover or the distraction of the world by COVID to crack down, for example, on democracy in Hong Kong. There are other ways that they're doing this as well. You put out a uh, statement condemning something that I hadn't even realized, that China uh, sunk a Vietnamese ship in the South China Sea. Talk to us a little bit about some of the things that we're not seeing, that we're not paying attention to about the way that China is exploiting this COVID pandemic and, you know, against Taiwan, more belligerence towards Taiwan, other areas, and what we need to do to counter it.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, China has now been very forthright in terms of what they're willing to do, uh, using force against Taiwan, incursions into Japanese uh, waters, sinking of the Vietnamese vessel, this absolute devastation uh, of a law in Hong Kong. Look, I remember meeting in Hong Kong several years back with Anson Chan and Martin Lee talking about some of the great uh, leaders, uh, civil society leaders uh, in Hong Kong, uh, talking about what they viewed would come from President Xi. And I remember at the time they said, well, this is, I think, right around the time of the corruption crackdown that Xi was leading in China. And a lot of people were going to jail. Uh, And the response was, well, maybe he's a reformer. And maybe these things are happening because he's setting the stage to be a reformer. And the, this will, and it became clear within a matter of months, uh, his intentions. And uh, you know, we talked about the the thing that was keeping Hong Kong together was the independent judiciary. And then we see the extradition law that China tried to force down Hong Kong, which basically would have wiped out that independence of the judiciary in Hong Kong. You know, we, we've seen what's uh, in, in the Philippines. Uh, obviously, what uh, China has done. President Xi came to the Rose Garden at the White House and lied to the American people about his intentions in the South China Sea, and we can, we cannot allow that to, to happen in other places. And we have to push back in the South China Sea, and we need allies. That's why Aria is important. We need allies in the region to push back and stand up to China. We need Europe to engage with what is happening uh, in China and how China is behaving. But you know. We now see them doing things like multi, multilateral uh, engagements and agreements. China has kind of avoided those in the past, but now they're starting. We see them uh, putting a significant amount of new dollars into their military uh, in the middle of COVID. We see their their language and rhetoric they're using, their ambassador in France, what they said about to the French response to COVID-19, what they've said about Australia, seeing them reply in ways that we haven't seen them act before, their response in Italy you know, the, the windowing of supplies out of China to other countries in response to COVID-19. So they are very much on the move, aggressively so, because they were embarrassed by their COVID-19 response, because of their culpability in the COVID-19 response, and because of their perception that the United States is weak, and they have an opportunity to use this to their advantage.
1: We would be remiss if we didn't try and close out with a little bit of American politics. We've got a big election this year, a presidential, obviously, uh, and one of the things that's really interesting is to is to watch is, as as Colorado has been part of the, sort of the transition in American states. I used to think about Colorado as a as a really Republican redoubt. And uh, now there are only two statewide elected offices held by Republicans. The state is really, really changing. We're not going to get you in trouble and, and, talk sort of, and talk dirty party politics in your Senate office because there are rules about that. But tell us about what's ahead for you in, and the race this year.
0: Yeah, look, I think there's a, there's a couple of things about Colorado that a lot of people uh, either forget or perhaps didn't know. Uh, You know, Colorado is a state that's only had one Republican governor in almost 50 years, and so so uh, that was uh, Bill Owens, and it sent Tim Wirth and Bill Armstrong uh, to the United States Senate at the same time. You couldn't really get much more opposite in terms of their philosophies or political beliefs uh, than than those two. And so uh, this is a state that does its own thing. It uh, votes for people who are going to fight for it, who are going to do those things that uh, it believes are right for it. So I, I think that's Colorado in a nutshell. I also think that people. When they say, oh, Colorado has gone blue or this uh, state is is voted for Hillary Clinton, what what they don't recognize is that in 2008, John McCain lost by about nine points to Barack Obama in Colorado. In 2012, Mitt Romney lost Colorado by about six points uh, to Barack Obama. And in 2016, President Trump lost to Hillary Clinton in Colorado by about four points. So that is not the general direction that people seem to be casting uh, Colorado uh, to be heading to. Uh, That's a state that's actually gone more right in a presidential election. Uh, So I think there's just a lot of things that Colorado has that keep people guessing. If people think they know Colorado or can count on Colorado, uh, they're going to be surprised because Colorado doesn't care what uh, Washington, D.C. is uh, trying to predict. Colorado is going to do what Colorado wants to do based on what it needs and how it it thinks uh, uh, the future should be determined. So exit question from me.
2: You know, Republicans are defending a lot more seats than Democrats are this year in the Senate. Your race could ultimately determine who controls the Senate next year. There's a lot of concern among conservatives that... If Democrats get control of the Senate and get rid of the filibuster and have a narrow Senate majority, they could use the COVID pandemic as a pretext to ram through a lot of stuff that otherwise would never possibly
0: get passed. What are the stakes in terms of uh, the control of the Senate next year? Oh, gosh, Uh, you don't even have to, to wonder about it because they've said it. Just look at the very initial ideas that the House of Representatives put forward to pass a Green New Deal in responses, but emissions controls on cows and airlines and everything else, uh, they want to ban cars, cows, and straws. And that's what they've said that they would do. Uh, you listen to the, the people around the country talking about what they want. They talk about packing the court because they can't limit the ballot box. So they try to uh, cheat at the courts. They talk about reversing the tax cuts and more regulations. Look, the economic recipe to get this country back on its feet Uh, after COVID-19's economic crisis is not making it more difficult to create jobs in this country. It's opening up our economy like it's never been opened up before to unparalleled economic growth and opportunity. That's how we get this country moving again. That's how we pay for what we have just uh, spent on COVID-19. And so, you know, that they want to undo that. They want an energy industry that is out of this country. They want to make us reliant on the Middle East again for an OPEC, for our oil supplies and natural gas. and that would in Colorado alone, that would result in 250,000 people losing their jobs. Those are the stakes that we have uh, to face and the consequences of the future of this country.
1: Senator, you've been hugely generous with your time. It's always great to talk to you. Everybody at AEI really enjoys the time we are able to spend with you. So thanks for taking just a couple minutes out of your day to talk to Mark and me at a really difficult time in the country.
0: Well, Danny, Mark, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for the great work that AEI continues to do, uh, and uh, you know, please know you're making a difference in the ideas uh, around the country.
2: Thank you, Senator.
1: So. I have to confess one thing to you. We had an entire interview with a senator from Colorado, and we not once talked about pot, (laughs) (laughs) which is absolutely incredible, because when most people say Colorado, that's almost the first thing I think about. It's pretty interesting hearing, you know, his take on whether Colorado actually is becoming more of a blue state or is secretly becoming more of a red state. I mean, what do you think?
2: You know, I'm not an expert on Colorado politics, so I don't know. And it's truly a purple state that could go either way. Senator Gardner's seat is one of the most hotly contested in this election. It's going to be a nail biter on Election Day. Even if everything goes perfectly for him and he runs a perfect campaign and his opponent uh, stumbles, it's going to be tight because of the politics in Colorado. But it is pivotal because if... Gardner loses, that could be the seat that tips the Senate over into into Democratic hands, and you know I, I fear for our country if we get to the point where we have Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic president with a party, a Democratic party that's been so radicalized, they will get rid of the filibuster in two seconds flat. And they will pass through a radical agenda on 51 votes, uh, and Joe Biden there as you know, at Bernie's with the, with a string on his arm, signing whatever the heck uh, <laughs> Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi send his way. So you know, th- that's a terrifying uh, prospect
1: for me. Right. We talked about that actually when we when we interviewed uh, Ted Cruz as well about what it would really mean legislatively if yeah. we had a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate. I confess to you, I mean, everybody knows I'm a, a, a conservative, although obviously not as conservative. As Mark, but uh, (laughs) uh, everybody knows that I am. But I I like that checks and balances in the House and Senate and uh, and in the White House. I like the fact that we can have different parties in control because I think, first of all, it makes us stronger. It makes us better, but it also ensures that only things that really people can get together on will pass. You don't want to be. We do not want to have another government where uh, where we get an Obamacare rammed down our throats by you know a sliver, and then spend the next years contesting whether you know biting away at it one legal bite at a time. It's just yeah. I'm not looking forward to this election.
2: Well, no one's looking forward to it, but (laughs) here,
1: Donald Trump is looking forward to it. he it, loves this fight. It,
2: well, I'll tell you, the thing that worries me most about our politics, and it's related to what you just said, is that everything has become about base maximalization these days. It used to be that the candidates would uh, secure their nominations and then try and appeal to the center and uh, again, yeah. win, win over uh, independents and uh, you know people who are uh, swing voters. And basically, the new mode of that is we're just going to fire up our bases and make those suckers in the middle choose between the two worst options that they, from their perspective and no, make no appeal to them. And what that translates to in governance is we can't get together on anything. And it's really, really hard to do anything in a bipartisan way. And to his credit, Cory Gardner has managed on this topic that we've been talking about on China and Asia policy, to do that, to reach across lines and come together in a in a bipartisan way. And it would be a shame if we lost that in Washington. Uh,
1: anyway, as always, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being with us. We look forward to not seeing you, but having you...
2: <laughs> I don't even know how to say are, are you sure you're not smoking pot, Danny? I know.
1: <laughs> I sound like I'm high. Danny is
2: high. That's okay. I'm talking about... He's health. high on life.
1: That's a first. Thanks for being with us. As always, send ideas, send suggestions, and uh, take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics
2: you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org.
1: Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this.
2: Thanks for listening.